Welcome to the John Mark Comer Teachings Podcast by Practicing the Way. This teaching was first given at Bridgetown Church in Portland, Oregon as a part of the Scripture series. I just got back from the UK, but the night before I left, I went to see 1917 with, yes, with my dear friend Josh Porter, who was here last week, is basically an adjunct teacher that doesn't get paid at Bridgetown. And Josh is my favorite person to see a movie with, one, because he is the consummate cinephile, and two, because we have a long-running debate over the role of TV and film and the mind of an apprentice of Jesus. So he's more of the, it's art, you know, to enrich, you watch it to enrich your soul and provoke you to mystery in the universe. I'm more of the, it's soft porn, you watch it to numb your conscious and destroy your neural pathways opinion. (laughs) I'm right, he's wrong, but I'm open-minded, right? And we literally have an email chain that goes back for three years. I think it started with Deadpool or something, and we just argue over email. Point, point, counterpoint, counterpoint. Anyway, on the rare occasion when we agree on a film, I love to go see one with him because he just knows way more than I know. And 1917, if you, how many of you have seen that movie? Just stunning, you know, it's the first movie as far as I understand that was ever shot in one continuous shot. And it felt very different than I expected. It felt more like a painting to me than like a movie. And in our little post-movie kind of late night debrief, Josh said something really interesting. He said, you know, they gave you the mechanism in the first five minutes, and from then on, the basic plot line was obvious, like you knew exactly where it was headed. Now, what he meant by mechanism, that's like actually a catchword if you're familiar with you know, plot or structure, anything like that. It's a device in story where you introduce the conflict that will drive the story from there on. Prior to the mechanism, all you really have is a setting and characters, but you need conflict in order to have any kind of a story at all. That said, in the overall story that is scripture, Genesis 3 is the mechanism. It's where like the introduction of conflict is to the story and it's the central conflict that will drive the story forward all the way to Jesus and beyond. Let's read it, Genesis chapter three, verse one. Now the snake was more crafty. If you're reading through Genesis three, that's like a jolt out of the blue. Wait, who is the snake and where does the snake come from and what is the snake doing in the story? You have no idea. All you know is that he was more crafty, and in Hebrew that word can be translated intelligent or devious, than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden, which is what God said just before. The woman said to the snake, well, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, yes, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the snake said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. God's lying to you. None of that, what he said is true. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, I mean, all that, she took some and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Notice what does the antagonist in the story, the serpent, 
go after? He goes after trust. Eve and Adam's trust in what? First off, just in God, in God's love. The implication is God has an agenda. He's not straight with you. There's a, there's a devious thing behind God. And then in God's definition of good and evil, you will not certainly die. God knows you will know good from evil. You will become, in fact, like God's. The baseline of the temptation to Eve is to redefine good and evil based on the voice in her head and the desire in her heart, rather than to trust in God's love and his wisdom as it comes to her through his word. This story is mythological in genre. Now, not mythological in the sense that, ah, it's a myth, it's made up, it's not true. Exactly the opposite. Mythological in that it's the deepest kind of truth there is. All temptation is, at its core, the temptation to redefine good and evil for ourselves, apart from God, based on the voice in our head, either from our own neural pathways or our AirPods, and the desire in our heart, rather than to trust in God, in his loving design and wisdom and intelligence and his word as it comes to us to take us to a happy and good life. Because of its archetypal nature, which is pretty obvious when you read the story, this story is where theologians get the language of original sin, even though that word sin isn't used until a chapter or two later. And the key insight for the attentive reader of the story is this. The essence of sin is trust. It's all about who you trust. Ignatius of Loyola, I, I use his definition of sin on a regular basis, and you will recognize it. He defined it as unwillingness to trust that what God wants for me is my deepest happiness. Right? Nobody sins out of duty or discipline. Thursday night, 7 p.m., time to have an affair. I don't really feel like it, but it's just the right thing to do. No, we laugh because no way. We sin because we believe a lie. Has God really said, you shall be like God's? We believe a lie about what we think will make us happy, and we trust the voice in our head and the desire and inclination of our own inner woman or man more than we trust the word of God. Eve and then her husband Adam after her chose to trust in the serpent rather than to trust in God. And the result is the story of the Bible, which you've read it is not short. And it's basically Genesis chapter story on repeat. It's basically, I'm sorry, Genesis chapter three on repeat over and over again until you get to Jesus. Turn over to Matthew chapter four to the right, all the way to Matthew chapter four. Matthew is, I mean, if you pay close attention, he is a literary genius. And this story in particular is very sophisticated in that it ties together Genesis 3 and the story of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and the story of Exodus and Israel in the desert. And it's all like a lead up to Jesus in Matthew chapter 4. Read it with me. And, and this one, as, as you read last week, is very different. Where Adam and Eve failed, Jesus did not. Where Israel failed, Jesus did not. Where all of human history failed, where you failed, where I failed, Jesus did not. Verse one, then Jesus was led by the spirit into the wilderness 
to be tempted by the devil. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, this is all kind of Old Testament imagery, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and he said, oh, here's like Genesis 3 again, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered, it is written, and next comes a quote from Deuteronomy 8, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every, what? Word that comes from the mouth of God, end quote. Well, then the devil took him to a holy city and set him on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down for it is written. And now he is about to quote Deuteronomy. Like I, or I'm sorry, Psalm 91. I see your Deuteronomy. I raise you a Psalm 91, right? Which is fascinating how well versed the devil is in scripture and his uncanny ability to manipulate it. It is written, he will command his angels concerning you. They will lift up your hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone, which is basically a, a line torn out of context. Jesus answered him, it is also written, and here comes a quote from Deuteronomy 6, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, one last time, the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. I will give all of this to you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Just one compromise and I will give you what you want. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written. And one last quote from Deuteronomy 6. Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and the angels came and attended him. Now, at one level, when you read that story, and there's a ton here we don't have time for, but Jesus and the devil are in a debate and a dialogue over scripture and over how to interpret it. But at a deeper level, they are in a conversation about whether or not to trust scripture as an act of trust in God or not. And notice in Jesus' moment of temptation, his chance to undo Eve and Adam's failure and Israel's failure, and my failure, and yours, to restart the human project itself. Jesus does not just say no to temptation. Turn these stones into bread, no. Neither does he just quote scripture as if that has some like magical power over the devil. Sword drill, Deuteronomy 8, boom, <laughs> right? No, he trusts in scripture as an act of trust in God. And that is the source of his victory over temptation and his healing and renewal for all humanity. Now, Jesus' posture here, posture here, his not only way of reading scripture, but his way of like living under scripture and that we read so well in Matthew chapter four has come to be called biblical authority. And that is on the docket for us to talk about today. I just thought that would be fitting for how we Portlanders feel about the concept of biblical authority. How many of you, all I have to do is say biblical authority and your amygdala is like on fire right now, a little sweat in your palm, a little itchiness on the back of your head. So just everybody, deep breath in, four seconds. You're Portlanders, you're used to this. Breathe out. The next 20 minutes, that's on the docket for what we wanna chat about today. The next 20 minutes, I just wanna forewarn you, um, are going to feel like a lecture 
but that is because I have great respect for your intelligence, and I'm well aware, as an insider, just how foreign and alien the concept of biblical authority is to our Western ear, and I think a lot of us really need to kind of sort it out in order to come to a place where we trust the Bible in the same way that Jesus trusted the scriptures. Now to start, let's just explore for a few minutes why we take such issue with biblical authority in Western culture. Like why is it that it makes not all of you, but most of you really nervous? For example, if you know we were Middle Eastern, as, as a stereotype, as a general rule, this would not be a major issue for us. Authority is really not a hangup. But often things like love and forgiveness really are. Which for us in the West, we're like, yeah, like who would have a problem with Jesus being all about love and forgive 70 times seven until somebody actually does something to you? Then we have a whole other opinion. But as a, as a concept, we're like, it sounds great to us. But authority for us Westerners is really hard to open up to. And add to at the top of that, we live in one of, if not the most anti-authoritarian cities in the world and in human history. I remember meeting a famous pastor a few years ago who has done work all over the world, very well-traveled, and he said, where are you from? And I said, Portland, and he immediately said, oh, Portland, that's the most individualistic and anti-authoritarian place I have ever been in my life. So the only place that comes close is Norway, but you still beat it out. And what he meant by that was like, have fun as a pastor in Portland, <laughs> goodbye now, thank you. But think of the language we hear on a regular basis. Speak your truth. Be true to yourself. You do you, or the ubiquitous bumper sticker with the fist. Resist. I don't know what we resist, but okay, resist. But this allergic reaction to authority is really true across the West, which in many ways is a kind of post-Freudian therapeutic world. If you're familiar with Freud, with most of you have at least a cursory grasp, he taught that all neurosis is due to the repression of desire from an internal source and or the oppression of desire from an external source. And he said authorities, such as the state or God or the Bible or church or tradition or gender or whatever, it's there to keep us in check and to make society work for all. And in his view, there was a time and a place for authority. But the problem was, he said, as a result, we are oppressed from without and repressed from within. And therefore, because we shove down our desire, we are unhappy. The solution to the problem in a kind of quasi-Freudian worldview is to be true to yourself meaning don't let anybody else tell you what to do. You do you, be who you are, do what you want to do, not what you are told, as long as it doesn't, quote, harm the rest of us, which sounds great until you realize that we don't agree on what harm is, and hence all the vitriol in our society. Add to Freud a little Foucault and French postmodernity and the idea that everything is about power and that even he would say truth itself is a form of a power, power that is used by the power brokers of society to keep us from freedom, which is literally the opposite of what Jesus said about power and truth. You shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. But in that kind of Freud, Foucault, French modernity like world, all you have is not the quest for truth anymore, but rather the quest for pleasure. And then you have a city like Portland. And in the mental map of a Portland, the idea of authority in general sounds suspect. And the idea of biblical authority, of living by the teachings of an ancient library from the other side of the world, written by people who are all dead, 
rather than by your own inner desire and intuition and sense of right and wrong, that doesn't only sound bizarre to us, it sounds dangerous. But I would argue a lot of that is because in the West, we have a gross misunderstanding of what biblical authority actually is. There are different types of authority. In the West, we are most familiar with structural authority, which is basically the power to coerce or control from the top down. So it's the authority of an org chart or a military rank or a team captain or the government. Structural authority is located in a position. And we have to obey those in authority over us, our boss or the police officer or whoever, or we face the consequences. And we obey not necessarily like out of love and of trust, but because like we don't wanna get a ticket or because we don't wanna end up in jail, which is why often when there's no authority around, we do whatever the heck we want. And there is a time and a place for structural authority, even inside of the church and inside the family, to keep the flesh in the New Testament language in check. But structural authority can't set your heart free. All it can do is keep you like inside boundaries. But spiritual authority is of a whole other genre. I would define spiritual authority as an access point to reality, meaning to the way things actually are. Spiritual authority is located not in a position, often people with spiritual authority have no position, but in a person and in the language of philosophy in their moral knowledge. Now I know just enough political philosophy to be dangerous, so go easy on me. But in the Enlightenment, morality and theology were moved out of the domain of knowledge and where you know, science and technology, for example, still are, and into the realm of belief, by which most of us think that means opinion or feeling or wishful thinking. But science and technology, as great as they are, cannot answer the deepest and most important questions of human existence. What is the meaning and purpose of life? What is good? What is evil? Who is a good person? And how do we become one? So the last ethic that we're left with in Western culture is tolerance or diversity. And while I'm all for ethnic diversity, what most people mean by that is ethical diversity, which turns ethics into a joke rather than into the most serious quest of human existence. But central to the writers of scripture is the assumption that there is moral knowledge in the universe or what they would likely have called chokmah, which is the Hebrew word that we translate in our English Bible as wisdom. In fact, there's an entire genre of literature in the middle of your Bible called the wisdom literature. And a bunch of it isn't Hebrew at all. and has nothing to do with God or theology. Some of it's from Babylon or Mesopotamia or Persia. It's just a collection of wisdom, of chokmah, of statements about how the world actually is. And that's what wisdom is. Chokmah in biblical literature is more than just street smarts. It's a way of living in alignment with reality. The writers of the Bible live inside a different worldview to that of the West, where they would argue, I think, best as I can tell, that you can know ethics, you can know right and wrong, you can know theology, you not just believe in it, you can actually know God in a different way, by a different metric system, but to the same extent that we can know, for example, science. I think if they were here, they would say that in the same way there are natural laws to the universe, such as E equals MC squared, or the laws of thermodynamics or gravity, there are also moral laws to the universe. 
and relational laws to the universe and spiritual laws to the universe that, it, that are just as true as the physical ones and that exist independent of our opinions, same as gravity or whatever. This is why so much of the Bible is in the form of story and poetry or just statements about reality rather than in the form of commands. Jesus, of course, was like the, the like example par excellence of this style of teaching. Think of some of Jesus' most important teachings. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It is more blessed to give than to receive. The last shall be first. None of those are commands, just statements about reality. Think of all Jesus' parables, none of which have a single command in them, just statements about how the world actually is. Jesus saw himself and his teaching, along with that of the scriptures that came before him, as an access point to reality or to wisdom or to moral knowledge. And he bore witness to that reality in his own body and his own life. In fact, take a look at this. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, which is, if you've not read it, is just a stunning vision of life in the kingdom of heaven. It's also Jesus' interpretation of the Bible. It's basically his Bible teaching. The people at the end of the whole thing say this. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught who as, as one who had what? Authority and not as their teachers of the law. Now the word, the Greek word there translated authority is exousia. And it's made up of this Greek preposition ex, which means out of, and then a Greek word that essentially means like oneself. So the idea of authority here, exousia, is that Jesus' authority comes out of his self. It comes out of his inner essence. It's like his life and his teaching were a living witness to reality with a capital R. Jesus, if you think about it, had zero structural authority. He was not on the Jewish Sanhedrin or in the Roman Senate. There was no military at his back or legislation that he was at all interested in. But Jesus had all sorts of spiritual authority. Many of the great luminaries of human history had little to no structural authority. Gandhi, Mandela in the beginning, Martin Luther, Harriet Beecher Stowe, they just bore witness to reality. And people in time discovered that what they said was actually true, that it corresponded to the way things actually are. That's not to say Jesus was just another wise sage, but to say the type of authority we find in Jesus and in the Bible that's tied up with him isn't structural, but spiritual. Meaning it's not a power to coerce us and control us against our will. When people, read the gospels, when people hear Jesus teaching and opt out, Jesus doesn't call down fire from heaven and smite them in the name of God. He doesn't write them a parking ticket or a citation, right? Or say, I'm gonna charge that to purgatory. That's three months right there. Like, no, he just, I don't know, most of the time he just walks away. Okay, I mean, Jesus has such great respect for human dignity and freedom for you to make your own decisions even if they corrupt you from the inside out. Jesus' authority and that of the scriptures that he was a teacher of and would live under and quote and trust is an a it's spiritual authority. It's an access point to reality. And we, just like the people in the four gospels, have to decide whether we live with it or against it in harmony with the melody of Jesus and the writers of the Bible or in a kind of dissonance and disenfranchisement with it.
Now, based on that paradigm of authority, just stay with me a little bit longer, let me do my best to summarize the logic of biblical authority in three very simple points. This should be three hours, but here's three minutes. One, all authority is rooted in God, who is reality. He is the creator, we are the creation, right? So that's, that's the locus point of authority, not in a text, not an apostle, not in God himself. Two, because God is a relationship of self-giving, generous, creative love and wisdom that we call the Trinity, he has from the beginning chosen to vest his authority in the prophets and the apostles, which is what the Bible calls the writers of scripture. Because this is how God has always done things, literally from page one of the Bible. He has used human agents to bring about his kingdom on earth. The ultimate example of that is Jesus himself. Three, in living under the authority of the Bible, we are living under the authority of God himself. Or put another way, in listening to and trusting in and obeying, as dirty of a word as that is in our city, the scriptures, we are listening to and trusting in and obeying God as an act of love and worship. To reframe that in the negative, in not listening to or not trusting or disobeying the scriptures, we are not living under the authority of God. It's an act of rebellion against him. As a result, we live in conflict with reality, meaning we live out of alignment with the way things really are, the way human sexuality really is, the way long-term relationships really are, the way human beings and money really is. We live out of alignment with reality and we suffer the tragic result in our soul and in our society, less from vengeance of God or fire from heaven and more just out of the law of the universe that actions have consequences or in the language of the New Testament, whatever we sow, we also reap. Now, this last one raises, oh, I love our big screen. It's about time, fantastic. Whoever you are, QPMB, pray for you as a parent. <laughs> now, this last one raises all sorts of questions, not the least of which is, what about the fact that most of the Bible is a story. How do you live under the, quote, authority of a story? Have you read Judges lately? How do you live under the authority of Joshua or even the authority of the book of Acts for that matter? And I know there are commands in the story. Do we just go through and obey the commands? But what about the fact that there are contradictory commands? Like some say one thing and others say another. Do we just pick and choose? Like, is there a, is there a coherence or a logic to it or no? Well, there are two answers to that. The first is theoretical, the second is practical. First, the theoretical. The Bible is a story as a general rule, not a rule book, and therefore there are rules or commands that are right and fitting for one part of the story but not for another part meaning there are commands for ancient Hebrews living under a theocracy that don't apply for modern Americans living in a democracy. As always, the best example for this is Star Wars. <laughs> There's so much we could say here because Star Wars has a canon. Lucasfilm actually used that language of the canon. 
And the canon has all sorts of different genres, movies, TV shows, some for adults, some for kids, cartoons, books, comic books, video games, paraphernalia, and it's all sorts of stories from over 40 plus years now from all sorts of different directors and actors, but together there's a coherence. Together it tells a unified story. And in that overall story, there are contradictory commands. For example, in The Empire Strikes Back, which is the, basically the last good Star Wars movie we have, Yoda tells Luke not to go out and take on Vader, but to stay and complete his training. But then in Return of the Jedi, where it just starts to go downhill, but it's still good, he says, you must face Vader. This is like Yoda's one and only grammatically correct sentence in the entire franchise. <laughs> Was Yoda contradicting himself? No, of course not. At one point in the story, when Luke was at a certain stage of development, that command was right and fitting. Later, when he was at another stage of development, farther into the story, that command was actually a bad idea. The Bible is full of stuff like that. Food laws, circumcision, multiracial marriage, slavery, war. There are all sorts of commands we don't obey, not because they are bad per se, but because they were from an earlier part of the story. They were good and right for that time and place. We don't pick and choose, but we live at a later point in the story. This is exactly the case made by Paul in Galatians. And go read Galatians on your own time. It's very sophisticated and very intelligent. His metaphor at one point for why we don't obey all of the commands from the Torah, or the Old Testament, is he said the Torah was like a, and the word he uses is basically the Greek word for a nanny or a tutor that would watch over a child and kind of grow and mature a child to adulthood. If you think about it, I have rules for my three kids that are great rules for 10-year-olds, like go to bed at 8.30. But at some point, if they were 43 years old, that would have been like, first off, that actually, what used to be a good command would actually be a bad one, like a lazy one, you know? Like, do something with your life. Don't go to bed at eight o'clock at night or whatever the thing is. And it's not that it's a bad command, it's that there's a time and a place for one and for another. This is why it's not enough to just follow the rules of the Bible. The ideal reader, if you pay close attention, is expected to then live out the story of the Bible. N.T. Wright has this great analogy, and again, we'll get more practical in a minute, of how the Bible is like a five-act Shakespearean play, which he breaks down into the five acts of creation, fall, Israel, Jesus, and the church. But then he makes the point that it's like most of act five is missing, and all we have is the very beginning, the New Testament, the book of Acts, and the very end in the Revelation. We live in between. And we, in his metaphor, are like directors or actors in that our job is to act out the missing bit of act five based on what comes before us and what will come after us with both continuity and creativity. Back to Star Wars. The reason so many of us hate the new trilogy Main reason is because of greed, and I don't even get me started. 75% of the income's merchandising. It's no longer an art film, it's a commercial. It's tragic. But the main reason is many of us feel it does not honor the authority of the canon. <laughs> and not just me, Mark Hamill, Luke Skywalker himself, when he read the script for episode eight the first time, said to the director, Ryan Johnson, quote, I fundamentally disagree with every decision you have made for this character. <laughs> he was saying the way that you're telling this story is not in line with the authority of the canon. 
It's not like, it's not the trajectory of the story. This is in the wrong direction. This is not the heart behind the story. A director or actor's job that comes later in the canon is to step into the canon and live based on what has come before and in light of the end goal. This is why so much of the Bible doesn't tell you what to do. Sometimes it will tell you what to think or what to feel, but often it just tells you stories or makes statements about reality, and then you have to act on that with imagination and participation. And he write again in his essay on this subject entitled, How Can the Bible Be Authoritative?, which is worth 10 minutes of your time. It's really kind of the best thing I know on biblical authority. Writes this, story authority, as Jesus knew only too well, is the authority that really works. Throw a rule book at people's head or offer them a list of doctrines and they can duck it or avoid it or simply disagree and go away. Tell them a story though, and you invite them to come into a different world. You invite them to share a worldview or better still, a God view. That, act, that actually is what the parables are all about. They offer as genuine Christian storytelling does, a worldview which as someone comes into it and finds how compelling it is, quietly shatters the worldview that they were in already. Stories determine how people see themselves and how they see the world. Stories determine how they experience God and the world and themselves and others. Great revolutionary movements have told stories about the past and present and future. They have invited people to see themselves in that light and people's lives have been changed. If that happens at a merely human level, how much more when it is God himself, the creator, breathing through his word? Now, if all of that is too theoretical for you, next, the practical. The Bible isn't a rule book, but as you all know, there are lots of rules in it. How do we know which ones to trust and obey and which ones to ignore and which ones to kind of reinterpret and reimagine for our day and age? Well, there are four very basic rules of hermeneutics, all right? Here's a 10-hour class in two minutes. One, the primary way of getting to the right interpretation of the text is what scholars call authorial intent, meaning what did the original author intend for the original audience to hear? This is basically the golden rule of hermeneutics 101. The driving question of all study of scripture, Greek, Hebrew, context, background, all of it is very simple. What was Matthew or Paul or John, whoever the author is, trying to say, and how would it have come across to the audience, a first century Thessalonican or Ephesian or Corinthian? Two. The Bible is a long, complex story, and the overall narrative is authoritative for all followers of Jesus, but specific parts are not necessarily binding on those who live at a different part of the story from others. Three, we live at the same part of the story as the New Testament church. So we come under the authority of that part of the Bible, kind of Matthew to the right, and we obey all of its commands, not some, unless they are clearly for specific individuals, such as go to Troas and find Paul's coat. You don't need a book of flight to Turkey this afternoon. You're not in rebellion against God, I promise, right? Or even one like honor the emperor. We don't have an emperor. You're free to not do that. Four, this will sometimes require cultural translation, where the meaning of symbols has changed across the centuries. 
For example, for me to greet another man or a woman with a holy kiss means something very different in Portland in 2020 than it would have in Ephesus in AD 50. Same with women. In fact, it kind of means the exact opposite or something very different. Same with women and head coverings, men and long hair, slaves and masters, foot washing, or honor the emperor actually could fall into this list, and a short list of other commands. And it really is a short list. I gave you just about every single one. It's very short. But we still actually obey these commands. We just have to translate them. We have to get to the heart behind them and figure out how to live that out. So the heart behind greet one another with a holy kiss is treat one another as family with a warmth and even a demonstrative affection, which for you might look more like a hug or side hug, Bethany, squeeze, whatever it is, or high five or whatever your culture is, right? But it's still, we still obey that command. Greet one another with love and affection the way that you would treat a dear family member, even if you have no blood in common. Now, if you're thinking, if it actually is that simple, why are there so many different interpretations of the Bible? Why are there so many different denominations? Why is the Bible so confusing and complex? Why is it not clearer? Well, there are three possible answers to that. One, when it comes to the essentials, the Bible is very clear, and pretty much all followers of Jesus agree across the world and down through history on really all the stuff that's central. Two, even where the Bible is clear in its meaning, it doesn't necessarily follow that we will be clear in our interpretation of it. As we bring to the text all sorts of baggage and bias and assumptions from our culture, and preference from our personality. So even if it's very clear, it doesn't necessarily follow that we will be. Third, most of the areas where people take issue with the Bible are not where it's unclear, but where it's clear. And people just don't like what it has to say. Things like human sexuality and judgment on the left, or things like military violence and social justice on the right which is why we have to enter into a dialogue not only with scripture, but with tradition and with the way the Bible has been read by followers of Jesus across the world, not just late modern Western Europeans, for thousands of years. Now, what we talk about when we talk about all of this stuff, authorial intent and what is binding on us and not, and how do we translate all of it, is a way of reading the Bible called study. And that's our third kind of practice on the docket. I love Richard Foster's definition of study. Quote, study is a specific kind of experience in which through careful attention to reality, the mind is enabled to move in a certain direction. I love that, careful attention to reality. It's where we come to the text and we pay special attention in our attempt to discover reality, how the world actually is in order to live in alignment with how the world actually is and show up to the world and show up to our body and show up to one another and show up to God and show up to everything in between in such a way that we flourish and thrive. That said, our practice for the week ahead is all up on practicingtheway.org slash scripture. On the docket for the week ahead is to study the Bible. Shocker, I know you were not expecting that one at all. Um, for many of you that are new to the practice, there are so, there's not a right way to do it. There are so many options. The classic is just to go to a Bible study or come to church. 
in particular for our Matthew series, which we start up again in two weeks. I think we have eight or nine weeks straight in Matthew. I cannot wait to just exegete Bible for once. And this is a great chance for us to put into practice all that we have been learning over the last few weeks. Also is podcasting, The Bible Project. Did I say that once yet, a thousand times yet? Listen to it, you're welcome. Three, um, the internet has honestly changed Bible study forever. You can listen to an online lecture from a prestigious professor like N.T. Wright or take a class at biblicaltraining.org. If you don't know about that, it's fantastic. Or do your own study at a site like biblegateway.org. I mean, seriously, you can sit at the feet of the best teachers at an academic, scholar level, like historian level of all time, or at least in the modern world. It's such a gift. Another is just reading commentaries. That's how I still do 80 or 90% of my own study, or reading books. But the easiest place to start, if that's all like too much, is just to buy yourself a study Bible or get one used at Powell's and use that when you have a question that you wanna chase down or you come to a part of the Bible that just doesn't make sense to you. Um, Here's the two that I recommend. I love this one, Cultural Background Study Bible, which is by Craig Keener and John Walton, two of my favorite New Testament and Old Testament scholars in the world. And then the ESV Study Bible is kind of the gold standard. It's from more of a reform perspective than I would have a preference for, but it's still very good. And those are just a few ideas to get you started. That said, to end, um, this is my last teaching in our practice, but I just wanna restate my kind of original point, if you were here a few weeks ago, that when it comes to reading the Bible, and we're you know, playing around with four ways of reading the Bible, week one was large portions, and week two was Lectio Divina, and now we're on to study, and next week is memorization. But I just wanna remind you that posture is more important than technique. Technique matters hermeneutics, study, authorial intent, context, background, original languages, all of that matters, but it's all a means to an end. One scholar I read recently said, study is like, it's like the portico to a house or the front porch or the gateway. You do it to get through it to another way of reading scripture. So like you just wanna grow in your confidence and your competency with the text, not to know an answer to a question, but to actually move into Electio Divina, to move into hearing God from the Spirit in a text and, and how you let God form you into the image of Jesus. Study, more than any of the other ones, really is a means to an end. It's, it's the reading before the reading. And so with all of this, posture matters so much. And this is my last thought. This is where people really go wrong with Bible study Either they just make it an end, like just to kind of fill up the head with knowledge and never move from information to formation. But often, Bible study for a lot of people, in particular, I think if you're of the more millennial variety, becomes for a lot of people an attempt to find an interpretation of the Bible that agrees with your own opinion or desire or assumptions of your culture in order to live how you want guilt-free. Rather than an attempt to discover the will of God, to unearth his chokmah, his moral knowledge of reality, to better live in alignment with the reality of God. The Bible is old enough and complex enough and literary and sophisticated enough to manipulate for all sorts of agendas and just insert your historical train wreck of choice. But to read the Bible in search of validation rather than in search of revelation, is an exercise in missing the point. 
you end up just hearing the echo of your own voice or that of your own culture rather than hearing the voice of God. God then has no, and the scriptures then have no prophetic power to change your life and set you free to live in alignment with reality. It's the Thomas Jefferson approach. Like, you all know that story where he literally cut out all of the parts of the Bible that he did not like. What was left was very short. And what he was left with, you can go, it's in a museum somewhere, was far more of a projection of enlightenment thinking and a validation of his desires, in particular to own a slave and sleep around, than it was a revelation of God's chokmah. And that is a very American way to read the Bible. It's literally built into the ethos of our founding fathers. And it's an exercise in missing the point. All that to say, in the week ahead, or should you practice this, it's all up to you, all of this is invitational, our study of the Bible must come from a heart pasture where we tap into our deep desire underneath all of the other desires to discover the will of God for our life and for our time not to get to the Bible to agree with our view of insert your issue of choice, but to discover what does God think about this? How is reality constructed? How do I show up to reality in such a way that I flourish with Jesus in the kingdom and I thrive rather than live outside of it and with dissonance, not only with reality, but with the reality of my own soul? Biblical authority is one way of talking about this. But really, I think a better word for it is to trust. At the end of the day, so much of how we live comes down to who we trust. Whose mental maps do we live by? Do we trust the voice in our head or our AirPods? Do we trust the intuition of our own heart's desire? How accurate is our own desire and intuition to lead us to the life we crave? In my experience, it's not all that accurate. Do we trust the stuff that we hear on the streets of our city or in our news media outlet of choice? Or do we trust Jesus as he comes to us through the writings of the Old and the New Testament? Whose mental maps do we live by? It comes as no surprise that Jesus would regularly end his teachings by saying, repent and believe in the good news. We've done work on this just recently, how that word repent can also, metanoia in Greek, can also be translated rethink everything you think you know is true and what you think will lead you to the life you crave. And to believe, many scholars have made the point, really the best, better English translation of that word is trust. Rethink everything you think you know about how to live in a flourish and thrive way and trust in Jesus. Trust his teachings, trust his mental maps, trust the scriptures that come with him to lead you to life in the kingdom of God. Thanks for listening. This podcast was brought to you by Practicing the Way. We are a crowdfunded nonprofit that exists because of the generosity of listeners like you. To support our work, join The Circle, our community of monthly givers. To give or to learn more about running our resources in your church or small group, visit practicingtheway.org.